a different kind of podcast than usual today. I'm sharing the story of what it was like to be holding my husband's hand when he went into cardiac arrest in the hospital. Two full minutes with no pulse, code blue announced through the hospital speakers, and by far the scariest and worst night. The story of how it happened is crazy, and I'm sharing what led up to it, how I reacted in the moment, and what I think I did well, and the one thing I would have done differently now, of course, is things are clear in hindsight. My goal with this podcast is to share the most valuable things I've learned through this experience, so many lessons that I think could be valuable to you, and the aftermath, the long road to recovery for him and dealing with the trauma myself. We both went through the same thing, but from different perspectives. He saw the world slowly going black, and I saw the panic of the doctors trying to bring him back to life. There's a lot of sadness in this, but I promise you, this is an uplifting and informative episode, not a depressing one. Let's go. You're listening to the How to Be Awesome at Everything podcast, where we're obsessed with life hacks that make your life more awesome. Your host, Lindsay Dickhout, is an entrepreneur and business owner, a mom and wife, and someone who wants to do things over the top at all times. This concept started as a collection of things Lindsay has learned that she was documenting to give to her kids one day, and now it's a podcast. Join us on this journey where we talk about how to be awesome at everything we do. Here's Lindsay. Whew, deep breath going into this heavy episode today. But my goal is, of course, to share our experience, but mainly to make it valuable for you. The takeaways that I've learned, our experiences with hospital and ER and medicine and this health condition, but also just the stepping back and the big picture, dealing with crisis and trauma and recovery and complications and all of it. So I'm going to start at the very beginning. I shared a little bit on Instagram about what happened to Craig, but I didn't tell the whole story because I was in it when I was sort of posting. And it was mainly because it felt so personal and still does, but mainly so I could connect with friends, especially extended friends who didn't know what was going on. I wanted to kind of, you know, fill people in. And then the outpouring of support and love from people who listen to this podcast and friends, people who I went to college with who I haven't talked to in years, like I'm just so grateful. I'm telling you, what happened to us was nothing less than a miracle. And I think the power of wh whatever you call it, positive vibes, thoughts, prayers, love, everything that everyone sent our way, I believe we, we felt it. And I'm telling you, for a few days there, we really needed it. So I'm sharing today the parts that I think are the most valuable. Um, and I think the things that could really give you a good heads up, make you think about how you would react in a crisis or a trauma. We're going through all of it. I also asked on Instagram what questions you have about what happened, and I got the best questions, but hundreds and hundreds of them. So I kind of combined ones that were similar and have a big list that we'll go through at the end. So if you threw me a question on Instagram, I'll definitely get to that at the end of this podcast. So to kind of give a, again, this podcast could be 10 hours long, but I'm just going to give you the most important parts, the summary of kind of what's happened with him. So when Craig and I, we've been together for 18 years, about 15 years ago, I saw an Oprah interview where she was doing body scans out of a van, essentially. 
and they were $800. And we were both young and both, you know, had our own small businesses, but small businesses. And I thought, you know, Craig, we have $800. You should do a body scan. And I just felt like I knew Craig's a fun guy. And he liked, he liked, especially then he liked to have cocktails. And I just was like, you know, you kind of run your body hard. He's never done, he's never smoked. He's never done drugs. He just likes socially drinking. And I just felt like I just had a feeling that, you know what? I just feel like something's a little bit off with you. And he was young, super young at the time in his thirties. And so he did one of these body scans in the van, which now I've learned. I mean, technology is so much better now, you know, 15 years later. But now I've learned, especially for women, that type of radiation and exposure isn't great. And even and the quality of the one he got wasn't great, but it showed us a couple genetic issues. So he has small arteries and he has kind of what they call a floppy valve, like a weak valve. So he has a couple heart irregular irregularities that he was born with or are genetic. We don't know of any direct we don't know of anyone in his family with heart disease at a young age like like he was diagnosed with or heart issues so whether you know he was born with them for in whatever way couple different ones that we were kind of battling so after that initial van scan then i i found a real you know a real established imaging center and we did follow up follow up different scans and mris and ekgs and started the whole process of of really analyzing the health the health of his heart at that point, I found Dr. Rajput, who is his cardiologist now. At that point, he was in a group of lots of cardiologists at this imaging center. And then he went on to have his own practice. And now he's a concierge cardiologist. So we pay him yearly. And he is he's basically, you text him, you, you know, you're FaceTiming him with any issues. This is really for someone, it's perfect for Craig to have a concierge cardiologist, someone who has, you know, Craig has more than multiple heart issues and they've, you know, compounded over the years. So having a concierge cardiologist has been everything for us when Craig's gone through everything. So Craig's had several heart attacks. Um, when Parker was six months old, um, so that was almost so it was five years ago, Park, uh, Craig had a triple bypass. He had open heart surgery at Cedars in LA. It wasn't planned. He went up there for an angiogram and they got in there. They were going to do a couple little things. They were going to put in a couple stints. They got in and they were like, whoa, all the everything's blocked. They're, everything's blocked. It's full blockage. We can't even do anything else. We need to keep this guy here for 10 days so all his medications can clear out of his body and we can kind of stabilize him. They would not even, they said, with the blockage you have, you are not cleared to leave the hospital. And he felt okay, but he. they said, you physically cannot leave the hospital. You have to wait 10 days, tell all the medicines out of your system, and then we're going to do open heart surgery here. It was in November it was over Stella's seventh birthday and it was, it was so, it was so hard and he missed her actual birthday and her birthday party. Um, interesting that now what's happened this time was over Parker's party season, which just seems to make it harder. We celebrate birthdays big in our house and it's so important to the kids and Craig, of course, doesn't want to miss anything. So back then, pre-COVID, I was able to sneak in the two girls. So we had a birthday. I brought. I remember I made a, um, a cake in the shape of a huge seven and covered it with Skittles, the entire thing. We brought it up um, and, the, and we celebrated in the hospital room with Craig. So that was really great. I wanted to cancel her seventh birthday, but he was like, no way. 
the whole plan is to keep the kids' lives as normal as possible. The last thing I want her doing is sad that she's missing her party. I'm like, let's postpone it. He's like, no, that's not the plan. So he's always been selfless in that way and in many ways. And he was again this time. He said, I want the kids' lives as normal as possible. And I'll kind of get into more of that when I tell you my routine of how I was seeing him in the hospital. So the key with all this stuff is if this initial stuff is if you have a feeling how I just felt, okay, you run your body hard and I feel like something's just not right in the way that his heart, I don't, his heart wasn't even racing. I just, I just, honestly, I don't remember specifics about why I felt like something was off. I just felt like he needed it. So we did the scan. We figured out all that. We got linked up with Dr. Rajput and then we've been on this path. So he had the triple bypass. He's also had a couple AFib surgeries. I think he said three AFib surgeries, um, a couple stents put in, and he's had a couple heart attacks. So we've, and he has, he has, you know, real advanced heart disease. So that's kind of the the history of all the things we've been through. I'm used to being in the hospital with him. I'm used to advocating for his health. I'm used to keeping a good log of what happens and when. I'm used to, you know, helping be the quarterback in managing the different medications. Because in addition to Dr. Rajput, we also a couple of years ago brought on another concierge cardiologist, Dr. Abramson, Heather and Terry Dubrow. Uh, introduced us to him. And it's phenomenal because Craig's situation is so complicated that we we feel so fortunate. And and, and to be honest, we work so hard. Health is the priority. Like that's, it's money better spent there than anywhere else, of course. So to bring on Dr. Abramson was great because they both have totally different perspectives. And of course, like anything, they both have completely different experiences. And maybe one of them might have a patient that's experienced one small little thing that the other hasn't. They might have an insight. But it's difficult because these cardiologists are all used to being the quarterback. So kind of having a team and and making sure that everyone's communicating is really key because what we know is Craig's situation is complicated. And um, I always think that the more opinions, I mean, you could de- definitely, and we've experienced this, have too many opinions, which can be difficult. But I also want lots of eyes on this thing to try to to try to make sure we are that our bases are covered and we're thinking of everything and, and we're trying to avoid the worst from happening, which you know, essentially in this case did happen. So, fast forward to May to to just what happened um, in the last few weeks. So Craig's feeling chest pain and chest pressure at the beginning of May and his heart starts racing. So it's out of rhythm. So it's anywhere between like 110 and 135 beats per minute, which is super fast. It's basically like he's on a treadmill all the time um, and he's having chest pain. So this started at the beginning of May. On May 12th, on a Thursday, his doctors called it and said, you need to go to the ER, you need to have the paddles put on you, and you need to be cardioverted. So basically they, you know, put you to sleep and they shock the heart back so the heart shocks back into rhythm. It's not ideal. It's hard on the heart, but it's also really hard on the heart for the heart to be in AFib, for the heart to be racing every day. So after, you know, 10 days of heart racing, they say, you need to go to the ER, get cardioverted. He does that on May 12th. He's there for a couple hours for monitoring. He leaves, feels good again. Two days, no heart racing. We're like, yes, it worked. 
we're back in the routine of things. And sure enough, after two days, wakes up the next day, hearts back out of rhythm racing again. So we do the same thing about another 10 ish days, a little over a week. And on May 26th, this is the bad day. May 26th, another Thursday, so exactly two weeks from the last cardioverted, his cardiologist have him go back to Hogue ER to get cardioverted. So he goes in, he gets cardioverted at 10.20, and at 10.45 a.m., complications start. So his blood pressure drops to 70 over 58. He has a low oxygen. His oxygen is 85. I'm sitting there holding his hand. They're doing echoes. They're doing tests in the ER. And they tell us that we're going to be moved to the ICU. So the I'm talking to the doctors there. I'm texting and talking on the phone to his doctors. One curveball with all this is Dr. Rajput, his main cardiologist, got stuck in France with COVID. So we're working on a nine-hour time delay. And on the phone. So he can't see him. He can't listen to his heart. That part of it was really challenging. Kind of, you know, after all these years, the one guy who knows all the history and all the different medications and all the procedures, and there is so much history with all with, with Craig's health and so many complications and so many things we've been through, that guy's stuck trying to do this remotely. That was tricky. So that was another reason why I was like, you know, I'm going to, we're going to get a stand-in cardiologist. Our other cardiologist, Dr. Abramson, is not on staff with Hogue. He, um, he has a private practice and is, you know, kind of more of a, um, he's not doing surgeries or procedures. He's more of a, you know, like a regular in-office cardiologist. So in the hospital, I knew that we were getting a stand-in doctor that I hadn't met before. And I was working with the ER, ER cardiologist and ICU cardiologist. So we get moved to the ICU and at 345, they tell me that he is in complete heart failure and he is unstable. And so, and I have to leave from the point, they make me leave from the point that he moves from the ER to the ICU and get him set up. I have to go out into the lobby. They tell me it's going to be like 15 minutes. I go out in the lobby. I, you know, get my visitors pass the whole thing and I start calling all the doctors. I called Dr. Desai, who's the doctor in Mission Viejo, who in our area is really an expert at doing AFib surgeries, who's done Craig's AFib surgeries. And the crazy thing about this is this whole period of time when all this was happening, Craig sometimes resists a bunch of doctor's appointments and he thinks he'll be good. And But he was he was concerned. He, he knew he did not feel right. And he saw all three doctors, all three of these guys, multiple times over this. They're doing the, they're doing all the, they're doing the echoes. They're doing the EKGs. They're listening to the heart. They're doing all the tests. So I knew he had just seen him a couple days prior. And in fact, he had a AFib surgery booked with him the following week, which thank goodness, thank goodness we never got to that point because Craig's heart was way too unstable and we didn't know. So the question is, Craig going into heart failure at 345 on that day, the question is, was the heart just too tired from racing for so many days? Was it, uh, did this shocking then weaken the heart, this, when they put the paddles on him and cardioverted, was that way too much for the heart for an already weak, tired heart? 
Um, it could also have been the medication that his doctors had him taking um, before this. They really had him ramped up on medications so that he could try to click back into rhythm on its own or after the cardio this medication helps it stick back in rhythm, but it's, it's an intense medication and a high dose. So we'll never know. Probably a combination of all of the things. But at 345, a doctor who I've never met before ended up coming out and telling me um, that he was in heart failure. And this doctor, we and we ended up literally striking gold with this guy. He was, I can't, I can't even, I'm like, I can't even explain. He's very direct. And he sat me on a bench right outside of Hogue. Oh, man, when I walk by that bench every time I like feel all the emotions in my gut, he's like, um, you know, he, he has a, he, where is he from? He has an accent. I want to say he's from Australia. No, Europe. He has an accent. He's very direct. And he says, um, I'm, I can't promise you he's going to be okay. This is not good. All the signs are not good. The low blood pressure, the low oxygen, he's in complete heart failure and we're going to do everything we can. We're going to do the best we can, but I just can't tell you that he's going to be okay because this is right now, this is worst case scenario. So I'm in the lobby and this is the only time throughout this process that I was crying because all this was, was the unknown. And I'm calling every doctor. So I have a work phone and a personal phone. So I'm calling on both phones, on hold on one, on the other. I'm talking to every every doctor. Hey, I know you just saw him. I need you to know what's happening. I need you to call and talk to them. And again, it's almost too many cooks in the kitchen, but I just figured I got to loop everybody in. I can't have this doctor, you know, who just saw him with, you know, could have some information that these, these ER doctors could possibly use and not filling everybody in. So I'm crying in the lobby. They said it would be about 15 minutes. 45 minutes later, I'm like at the at the at the guest desk like you they told me 15 minutes. Something has to be wrong. I have to get back there. It is not an option. Like this is just way too long and he's not stable. You got to get me back there. And the people were, were so kind and no matter what even when I was emotional, I was never short with people cuz I just know, listen, they're just doing their job. But I feel like if you're honest with people and you're not afraid to be vulnerable, you know, they were like, yes, I will call for you. I'm so sorry. Like I will, I will call for you. So they kept calling and it was longer and longer. Finally, I got back to see him and he's like, I just, I just feel awful. I don't feel well. So this is one of the key things. At that point, I took the doctors aside in the ICU and I said, I do not want you telling him how bad this is right now. Now, this is the only time every other time through this, through, through this, except for this day, I want him to know, I want him to be informed, but I knew he was out of it. His heart was failing. There's there was nothing good to tell him. Like we we don't know what's going to happen next, but all news was bad news. Every test that came back was bad. The blood work was bad. The heart test, the echoes, everything was bad. And I said, "I don't want you telling him. Tell him we're holding you here for monitoring. You're getting fluids, you're getting stronger, and you're going home. That's what I want you to tell him because I believe you can think yourself well or you can think yourself sick. If someone tells you you're dying, you think you're dying. If someone tells you you're recovering and you're going to be strong so you can go home to your family, then that's the mindset you have. For me, mindset is everything. So that, that night, I made sure everybody that came into that room 
um, when he's asking questions, you give him the positive version of whatever you have to say. You are not telling this guy the truth because he has to be mentally strong and mentally thinking about getting stronger and getting out, even though I knew that wasn't the case. So next is the one regret that I have through this whole thing. And I'm very grateful the way it turned out. I got lucky on the timing of it and, you know, everything's clear in, tw- in, in hindsight. So 345, they tell me he's in heart failure. I connect with everyone. I talk to Dr. P, his new, his, his stand-in doctor. And, um, I, they tell me, um, that there's a nurse in the ICU, there's a nurse um, switchover. So there's an exchange of nurses. You know how they do the shifts. So I have to leave between 6 and 7 p.m. I have to be gone and then I can come back in. I should have said no. That this, this is, this is, this is the lesson. This is the one regret that I have is I should have said no, I'm not leaving because this is what happened. So they said, you have to leave for an hour. Craig's like, listen, you just please don't fight them. Like they're helping me leave for an hour. And it was the girl's open house. So I had already called my mom and sister. You guys are taking the girls to open house. I am not leaving Craig's side. Um, the kids already had known because this was already weighing on everybody's heart for the last month. The dad was having chest pains and heart pains. And so Stella, our older, our oldest daughter is like, I'm too sad. There's no way if mom's not going, I'm not going. And a new open house meant so much to them, especially with kind of, you know, this the the year still having some COVID things in place. We hadn't been able to see anything, been be in the classroom very much and see the work they had done. And our school really leans in heavy to open house. Like it's the one day you you tour everything, you really see all the projects. It's really important to them. So I'm like, okay, they're making me leave. I don't want to, you know, the the nurses are all so fantastic. I don't want to push limits. So I raced to the house. I picked up the girls or picked up all three of them, took them to open house, did a quick version of the open house, dropped them back off at home with my mom and sister, raced back to the hospital and I was gone a couple minutes over an hour. Like I really was like, listen, if they're kicking me out for an hour, I'm going back in the second I can. So it was literally by the time I got home, got to school, got back to home and got back to the hospital was a couple minutes over an hour. So I get, I get back there at seven, say I'm, you know, seven ish, say I'm back with him at seven 15 and I'm like, this, this is still not good. He, every, everything I'm talking to the doctors, it's still not good. We're in ICU and we're in the ICU to where everyone who's in this ICU is unstable. So we have a nurse that doesn't leave our room. So I'm sitting next to him. And I'm holding his hand. And this is, so I get there at 7.15, talking to him. He's like, you know, I just don't feel well. I'm like, it's okay. We're going to, you know, they'll probably admit you for the night. We'll rest. We'll go home. Keeping up the positives. 8.29 p.m. I'm holding his hand. He goes, I don't, I don't feel well. He leans his head back. His eyes roll back in his head and then his eyes sort of zigzag like a video game. And I'm like, what? what, what? Like he, It looks like he's like shorting out and his face instantly turned blue, like blue purple. I've never seen anything like it. When I say blue, like a blueberry within seconds. And I, the nurse is right there and I was like, help, help. 
you know, something's happening. She comes over. So she she comes over and checks his pulse pro- probably within, you know, 10 seconds. And she goes, no pulse. Now, the thing I've learned since then is the devices that he, you know, the monitors that he's hooked up to, he was hooked up to everything, have like a 10 to 15 second delay because this whole thing has felt very long. Nothing was going off yet. There were nothing, nothing was dinging because, you know, in this amount of time, it's that quickly. I posted on Instagram, there are four types of cardiac arrest. So that's what was happening. Craig was in cardiac arrest. There are four types. And the type that he had is called V-fib. So it's the deadliest type of cardiac arrest. And most people don't survive because it's so, it, it's so quick. It's just, it's just so quick that you're, you have no pulse so quickly. You, you're, you're not getting any oxygen and, um, you know, also it just, all, all the organs were shutting down. So the, um, so the, and keep in mind, I'm holding his hand, when, holding one hand when this happens and like my other hand is like on his arm, kind of like on his bicep, right? So I'm fully holding him. So eyes roll back in his head, eyes zigzag, face turns blue, and then he starts doing what looks like a seizure. His whole body is seizuring and an aggressive seizure, like he's, he's, he's coming off the bed. So she goes, no pulse. I run into the hallway of the ICU and I just start screaming, help, help, help. He needs help. No pulse. And I just kept repeating no pulse because that's what she said to me. And I just wanted to make sure I was saying the right thing. But right away she felt it and she was like, no pulse. So I just ran in the hallway, help, help, no pulse. And so a team of incredible women and some of them, I think they have to be like the emergency team because there were the nurses, but then there were also, they run in and they start doing CPR. And I could tell right away, his body's lifeless, completely lifeless. One woman gets on top of him and she is doing CPR so hard that her feet are off the ground. She is going so hard. And they have the bag, like that oxygen bag going on his face. Like they have a whole, they're doing it. They have a whole system down. And I could tell it wasn't enough. And so I, this is all, this entire, this entire part was three, Two, two full two full minutes with no oxygen. But this whole this whole process was about five minutes. So right away, doing CPR, doing CPR, I'm like, this isn't enough. And I'm like, we need a doctor. Help. We need a doctor. Then I start hearing on the hospital um intercom, code blue, code blue ICU. And I'm like, oh my, that's him. Oh my God, he is code blue. And uh, I heard someone then say, wait, do we need a doctor? I said, yes, we need a doctor. And then I ran out in the hallway and I was like, help, we need a doctor, code blue. Because I just felt like I knew we didn't have that that long. He was already he was already without oxygen. He was already no pulse. And so then doctors came in. And then before you knew it, we had a good 12 people in the room. And then I hear one minute, no pulse. And they're still doing it. They're all doing it. And then the doctor, like now there's there's like three male doctors in the room. One doctor is standing at the head of the bed by by Craig and starts shouting out questions because he just came from another floor. He he didn't even know. He wasn't in the ICU. It's not like he had been prepped, okay? You know, this guy's 50. He came in this morning for with AFib and he had, he was cardioverted. He knew nothing. He was walking in completely blindly. I knew they were because I hadn't seen any of them on the floor, you know, that day. And so he is standing at at the head and he starts shouting questions. 
Now, this at this point, I'm standing kind of out of the way. I'm standing, picture like in the hallway, you know, in between all the other rooms. And I remember I had a purple mask on, a purple like hospital mask, and I'm covering my mouth. And I'm just like, no, no, no. And I just was telling when people would walk by, I was like, he has to be okay. He has to be okay. But I was super, I took a picture like instantly, which is so crazy because I was like, I was so worried that this is not going to end great. But I sent it to his cardiologist so he could see, like there wasn't time to be like, uh, I just put no pulse and I sent a picture. And Craig was happy later because, you know, he feels like, well, I'll get to that later. I'll get to Craig's, uh, you know, trying to make the best of this. but. Um, the doctor standing at the head of the bed was shouting questions and I came from like the middle and I would shout the answers. And I was so, I, I feel so lucky that I was there because we needed help so fast and faster than anyone could operate, you know, like how can you, and I, I just feel so good that I was able to help get him that help he needed fast, like gather the troops at that second that he needed. Because I'm telling you, if I wasn't out yelling in the hallways, we wouldn't have gotten it because you, there was one girl in there and the the things weren't going off quite yet. And what, I mean, they eventually did, but I mean, time was of the essence. And then when he was shouting questions, all these other people had known. We hadn't been in the ICU that long. Not everyone knew the story. So he's like, what was this guy already cardioverted today? I said, yes, cardioverted at 1020 this morning because he was in AFib for two weeks. He's like, thanks. Like he kept shooting questions like that. And I kept telling him um, the answers. And then two minutes, no pulse. And I'm telling you, head still purple, body still lifeless. But the thing that made me the, this, I don't know what the word is, the saddest, the most, the most grim about the whole thing is the way that they would look at me. Like when I caught the eye of the people in there, you know, because there's only so many people, they're all in there, but there's only so many people that could work at the same time. So when they would look at me, their look, even with masks on, I was like, oh my, you know, like, I mean, I knew this was worst case scenario, but not knowing how it was going to end and the way they were looking at me, I'm sure they see it go both ways. I was like, why are they looking at me like he's gone? And so two minutes, no pulse. And she's still doing, my God, this, this woman, I can't even, the, the, the level of respect that I have for healthcare workers and people in the hospitals and, and how much they give, how much they changed our lives, our family's lives. So CPR, doing the bag, we've got everyone in there now. And then all of a sudden someone yells, small pulse. And I was like, yes, like I am, I'm in the middle, like, yes, yes. And so then small pulse. And then one of the doctors is like, ventilate him. They go to put the ventilator in and his eyes pop open. And um, he's like, com comes to slowly, but his eyes are open. And I'm like, I mob in there. Like I didn't even wait for it. And I kissed his whole face and I was like, you did it. You are so strong. You fought for it. You came back. And he looked at me and he was just like, I just... I just laid here and I was like, no, no, you fought for this, Craig. You are so strong. You're back. Like you are so good. And I hugged those women so tight and I have no idea if they felt comfortable with it with COVID or not. We had our masks on, but I just gave them the biggest hug. And I just said, you, you changed our life tonight. Like you working hard changed, changed, changed the course of our lives. And I can't thank you enough. Like I'm just so grateful. And it was 
it was the most traumatic thing I've ever seen to stand and watch it, the whole, my worst nightmare play out. Now, let me explain why this quickly, why this part was actually my worst nightmare. So when Craig, Craig loves to socially drink, like he's never been an alcoholic, but he definitely is, was a social binge drinker. So even after we knew he had this heart condition and the doctors told me, listen, if he binge drinks, he's at risk of sudden cardiac death, which is basically cardiac arrest. If he over drinks and kind of blacks out, it's the worst thing for him. Alcohol is a trigger for AFib. So when we were younger, especially it was kind of like, I mean, it happened off and on through the years, but mainly when my girls were little, when the girls were like one and two, he had this group of friends and they were all really fun and they'd love to go out and have fun and have cocktails and they'd over drink. And for me, it really developed an issue. I understood he just wanted to have fun, but I was just like, this decision doesn't just affect you. We have we we have a family like you know these are bad decisions so it gave me a full complex and you know definitely was a strain on our relationship because i was a wet blanket i was like i don't want to be a wet blanket you make good decisions so i don't have to and it got to the point to where like after nights like this i would email his, his entire friend group completely like a psychopath honestly i would email everyone and i would say I know 100% this is Craig's responsibility to make good choices for himself, but clearly he's not. And you guys are his friends. You have to care. You have to help him make good decisions. You have to push him. You have to be a good influence. Like this is so important. This is life or death for this guy we love. Every now and then someone would respond, maybe at the beginning, but after I did it several times, because honestly I was desperate. I had no idea what else to do. I had developed a real panicked fear that Craig would go into cardiac arrest from binge drinking. And so it kind of, it really created a a death issue overall. Of course, if your husband has heart disease and if he has, you know, this severe and he's had all these surgeries and all these concerns, it's easy to develop a fear of him dying, but a specific fear about cardiac arrest. So, and then actually kind of just to close off that part of it, it's crazy. A couple Halloweens ago, Craig had a heart attack and for some, he's had many heart attacks. For some reason, that heart attack changed it all. It was years ago and he just didn't binge drink after that. You know, he'll still go out and have cocktails with friends, maybe one more than I'd like, but he just stopped. And man, it really, I did a podcast a little while ago about you can't change people. They have to change. And that is proof, but I tried. And honestly, I had to. What was I going to do? Just let him keep binge drinking and, and keep risking that something really bad would happen. But there was there there honestly was no changing it until he made the decision himself, until something clicked and he felt ready, there was no changing it. So I am so grateful for that because that really helped, you know, improve his overall health. So all that to say, I watched my actual worst nightmare play out in real life. And now the really interesting thing about sort of dealing with the trauma of it is I see it from two perspectives. I can, My mind replays the video of me watching this whole thing happen. I mean, I I've never remembered something so clearly in my life. I could tell, I mean, I can replay the whole thing like a movie. And then I also have another version that sometimes replays in my mind that it's as if I'm somebody else standing watching me, watching 
it happen. Like I'm watching me hold my hands over my mask and react to it. I have both versions of the movie that replay. For me now that we're beyond this, the heart in Craig's home, the hardest part is I can't control those two videos from replaying, which is the weirdest thing. I can control my thoughts. I can control my emotions when I need to. And I'll get into what it was like when Craig was in the hospital and balancing the kids and staying strong and all that kind of stuff. I was 100%, especially then when we're in crisis mode and he was still unstable after this for so long, that the interesting part about all this is I can control my my thoughts and my mind and my words and my thoughts, but I cannot control the video from replaying, the video through my eyes and the video as if I'm someone else watching me. Like I can see myself with the purple mask on holding my holding my mouth like over my mask being like, no, no, this cannot happen. It's it's really crazy. It's it's crazy the detail that the whole thing will replay and really um, bring back all the all the emotions and all the trauma and and all of it. So if I could just stop that video from replaying, I would be able to handle this so much better going forward. But so that was eight twenty nine. That started that night, and um, he was back at eight thirty five. And the only reason I know the exact times is because, like I said, I snapped a picture and sent it to his cardiologist. And then um, I got the report, um, all, you know, the different reports of when he flatlined and everything else. So the whole thing was a full five minutes. And I'm telling you, it was so long. And in that moment, feeling in your gut like my reality might be walking out of here without him. I mean, it could take you to the ground. It's not something that anyone is built to even deal with. And to see him you know, come to find out afterwards talking to him, he wasn't in a lot of pain, but it looked like he was in so much pain, seizuring and head blue. It looked like like if he were to go, it looked like the worst way to go. He looked like he was in so much pain. So afterwards, you know, jumping on him, kissing him, and and he said what it looked like to him was kind of like an old TV from the 70s where the screen slowly closed in and went black. And he says it was like being he just saw black and he could maybe hear faint noises throughout, you know, because they were doing CPR. So he was getting some oxygen. But um, then he just remembered hearing someone say, ventilate him. And he just told himself, Craig, wake up. He just knew ventilator was not good. Wake up, wake up. And that's when he pinged his eyes open. Um yeah, I just think, you know, and 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 like I said, the the medical team was so incredible. Um, but back to my point about my one regret about this thing. If this has had happened an hour earlier when I was at open house, I'm just not sure. And listen, this is in no way saying I saved his life. This is to my credit. This is all to the ICU team's credit, a thousand percent. But just the, how fast it happened and how much I know I was able to get people there and then also give those people answers, I am just so grateful I was there. I should have never left. Knowing that he was in heart failure, I just shouldn't have left. I just should have told them like respectfully, I know you have to do a shift change. I will sit in the corner and not say a word, but I cannot leave his side. That was the right answer. That would would have been 
you know, but of course, everything's clear in hindsight. Um, no one thought that he was going to go into cardiac arrest. Nobody. I mean, we knew it wasn't good. We knew he was in heart failure, but nobody mentioned that. We knew that he was in bad shape, but no one mentioned cardiac arrest before it actually happened. So Dr. P um, comes back. So he, again, is the stand-in doctor. Dr. Pazensky is his name. And he is the doctor who sat on the bench with me at 345 and told me he was in heart failure and this was basically worst case scenario. He comes back and he goes and does an angiogram. Craig's still in heart failure at this time. So he goes into, as quick as the doctor can get there, he goes into surgery and got a balloon heart put in to help his, his heart because his heart is so weak and all his other organs are so damaged from the cardiac arrest that his other organs are barely functioning, failing. Um, uh, so he goes into surgery. Dr. Prozeski does the surgery. At first he comes in and tells me, and it's crazy because at this point, you know, most like a lot of our close friends and family knew what was going on, but I could very, very few texts I could respond to. If someone happened to text me when it, when I was, you know, had a second and it popped up, I would respond, but I was just, I was missing a bunch of texts, but I had, um, texted a couple friends like one friend I didn't even know it it was all so fast it was all such a blur one friend um said is he okay I just put no and then her and her husband came to the hospital I mean I mean I and I was like I didn't did I even text you I don't even know she said you just said no he was not okay so we came so I didn't honestly didn't want to burden anyone and I was in such shock and I was in such execution mode I had I, right away, I took a I took a notebook, and that's why I know the times of everything. And I was and I just started a log. This is what everybody's telling me at each time because I know we've got a fill in doctor here who knew nothing about his history before today, and I know this is so complicated. We've gone from the ER to the ICU. We've switched teams a couple times. I need to be the quarterback here. There is no mistaking it. So in a way, I didn't even want anyone there. I'm like emotionally, I'm stable. I know I'm in shock. I'm in shock from what I just went through, but I'm functioning fine because I know. I know what needs to be done here and I'm proud of myself honestly for for stepping up and at that point I wasn't even I wasn't even crying because I knew there's there honestly is no time for emotion right now I need to absorb the information he's telling me I need to relay it to the other cardiologists um and so he said listen I'm going to go in there this is what I do this is what I'm good at you need to trust me but I need to tell you he's in heart failure so I'm going to do the best I can I'm going to go in through the groin put a put a balloon heart in there and we're, you know, we're going to be hopeful for the best. Craig's out of surgery at 11. And so by then I have, um, how many, I have five friends there with me. And again, I asked nobody to come. I told everyone not to come. And I was barely texting, barely talking to anybody, but I had five people there and it was all the difference because I'm telling you that amount of time that he was in surgery, which was like an hour, 20 minutes kind of thing would have been, would have just been way too long if I didn't have people just to, just to be talking to. And also, so then he gets out of surgery and Dr. Pazeski is a serious rock star. And also the, the team, the cath lab team that came in and did the procedure with him, they knew how serious this was. They knew what he had just gone through and they let us. And so everything was closed down Like because usually these are, you know, routine things. They had already got home and the team had to come back. So the team let us 
set up chairs for for us and then when they wheeled Craig in the room you know Craig had no idea those the other friends were there we all were like yes like you are a champion you did this you're on the other side of it like it was a cool moment for him even though it sucks for people to see you in the hospital you know you're just like you're weak you're down and out it's a very tricky thing but I knew in that moment he was just so grateful to honestly be alive. He was aware of what he had been through. Like, I don't think it had really sunk in for any of us because it had just been a few hours. Uh, but he got out of there. They let us They let us in the little holding area just for a little bit just to kind of be his cheerleaders. And then everyone left. And then I stayed there um, until like one in the morning. And then he... Um, was he got to cardiac ICU. So they took him out of surgery, admitted him to the cardiac ICU area, which we would be for the next couple of days. Um, a lot of questions about what I did and how I saw him in the hospital and how I balanced the kids and the timing of it. And this is what I did. My goal, knowing he's in ICU, he's in cardiac ICU. We are still, we are not out, you know, we are still in the thick of it in all ways. There are so many complications and his kidneys at this point were at complete failure. They didn't know if they were permanently failing or if they were in shock from the cardiac arrest. And it turned out everything started working again. But at that point, we didn't know. They actually took him off of the heart meds, which he really needed. But because the heart meds are hard on the kidneys, they're like, we got to get these, we got to get the kidneys working again, um, which they did. So what I would do, um, every day was a little bit different, but basically what I would do is go there as early as I possibly could, had a friend or family member and all of our friends and family were so incredible. So many people stepped in to watch the kids for a couple hours here, a couple hours there. But again, our priority, because the kids, uh, and I'll get into what we told the kids, but the kids knew the weight of all of this before even this. So our goal was always to keep the kid's life as normal as possible. Like Craig's like, come see, you know, check in with me once a day and then be with the kids. And I'm like, Craig, the kids will be fine. And I made sure when I left, it was always fun. Like they picked their DoorDash meal or friends came over with their kids. Like we just tried to make it so they weren't at home sad thinking about dad being gone because they really were, they knew. Um, so onto what, uh, onto what we told the kids and then I'll get back to kind of my routine with the hospital. So I sat the girls down and told them, honestly, Parker, Parker was four at the time. He turned five a couple days later. So for Parker, he's too young. For Parker, I, I just told him, daddy's heart needs more monitoring. He's going to have to stay at the hospital a little while longer. He told me to tell you he's the man of the house. And when I would go to see Craig, Craig would, you know, kind of, we'd make him look better and I'd wash his hair and, the, and he'd film little videos for the kids just to kind of keep them seeing him and not worried. We really didn't FaceTime because there were always nurses coming in. He has IVs and sometimes it's bloody. Like it needed to be more controlled than that. So we were doing videos um, so that the kids could kind of see him and not be so emotional. But it weighed very, very heavy. I also emailed all the teachers so they knew what was going on because I knew that when the kids are at school, their demeanor could be different just so that they had a heads up. You know, this is something they needed to have a heads up about knowing that the kids had such a heavy heart and might not be themselves or might be emotional, might need some extra hugs or attention or love at school. With the girls, I sat them down and told them a softened version, but the truth, because I think there's nothing worse than, you know, they're 10 and 11 and there's nothing worse than 
hearing the truth and later and I knew that they would somehow overhear or or get, you know, a glimpse of it. And there's nothing worse than someone hiding it or you think, wait, is it worse than I thought because they're hiding it? So I told them the version in softened terms, but I told them the whole course of everything that happened. So the kids knew he was okay. He just needed to stay there longer. So what I would do is I would go there early, like right when they would allow visitors, I'd bring him all his meals for the day. I just made him a very simple, healthy sandwich every day, and I brought him like a little egg breakfast so that he didn't have to eat the hospital food he didn't like, and he could eat fresh food from home that I knew he would like and I knew he would eat. And he was there for many days. So like at the beginning, I had to hand feed him. He had to stay completely flat laying. So I had to feed him all the bites. So those days I was in the hospital most of the day, but I always made sure there was a chunk of time. Plus he needed time to sleep and things like that. So, um, but at the beginning when I was feeding him the meals, I just didn't want the nurses to do it. Like, you know, you just feel so much better if it's your person hand feeding you every slow bite. So, but for the most part, I would go early in the morning, get him his meals in a cooler. So he had them all there. So if, you know, if he was hungry when I wasn't there, he had everything. Then I would go home for a chunk of time in the middle of the day and do something with the kids. I realized very quickly, if I came home and just started picking up the house and doing the dishes and the laundry, which is what felt like what needed to be done, that is not what was best for anybody. They were, you know, our house felt like a ball of sadness. You know, dad's not here and they knew that, that he's sick in the hospital and it's not good. So right away, I realized when I get, when I am with the kids, I am going to be with them a hundred percent and I'm going to be not, I'm going to be the best version of myself. So I took them on adventures. One day we went out and went to a new water park in Anaheim, one that had just opened. We'd never been to called Adventure Lagoon. And we went and we put on our rash on our um, life vests and we went on all those big blow up structures and slides and swings in the middle of like this man-made lake. So fun. And a part of me was like, so I literally went, you know, got dressed. And that's another thing I want to mention. Every day, no matter how tired and this, this whole time, I would sleep maybe four hours a night. Some of the nights I didn't sleep at all because I was just so worried and I wanted to be at the hospital. I felt I felt like not right, not being with him. Um, but in those early days when he was very, very unstable, I was only not with him for a very short period of time in the middle of the night. Besides that, I was there all the time because I also want, didn't want to miss any doctor visits because I wanted to write all the notes and make sure I was really getting all the play-by-play because he was still loopy. I mean, he had gone through so much. There was no way that he could remember and relay what the doctors were coming in and saying. So I would take them on adventures. And I remember sitting on the top of a slide at the water park being like, my life could not be any crazier. I got up, got dressed. And that's what I was going to say is every day, even if I was exhausted and didn't feel like it, I did my hair, put on a little makeup and put on something nice because for me, but also for him, I, you know, even though I just wanted to be in sweats and so scrubby, I just knew I feel better if I pull myself together. And also he feels better because he doesn't feel like, oh my God, she's worried that I might die. Like, that she's visiting me in the hospital. Like it just feels more normal. You know, I wanted to feel normal. I wanted to go in and, and, you know, feel like I, you know, looked good or listen. Okay. With all the bags under my eyes and bloodshot eyes, good as a stretch, 
but I put on something nice. It just wasn't in sweats the whole time just because I just wanted it to feel normal. I wanted to, I wanted to feel good and I wanted him to, to feel like he was almost getting out of there, even when I knew, you know, we were very far from that. Um, and yeah, I was sitting at the top of the slide and I was just like, this is insane. I literally went, got dressed, you know, got, got, got dressed and got ready, went to the hospital, came home, changed into a rash guard one piece, did the water slide for a couple hours, took a shower and went back to the hospital. But that's the only thing that felt really good because I wanted to be there for the kids and I wanted them to understand that like life will be okay. I didn't want to come home and, and, uh, shut down or just start tasking around the house and like live in this house of sadness. That was not an option. I was not unrealistic with them. I was honest with them, but I also know them sitting at home worrying is not going to do any good. So for now, it doesn't matter what the house looks like. And in fact, that's why when friends offered to watch the kids, I would take them up on it rather than, you know, and sometimes babysitters helped. Everybody helped. I need some, I needed, I need help twice a day, every day for 10 days. It was a ton. But I was like, you know, can you come over and bring your kids? So then the kids had friends over and, you know, it didn't even bother me if the house was, you know, crazy after just because I just wanted them to laugh and not just be sitting in their rooms because this was weighing so heavy on everyone. So that's kind of how I managed the days and the days were a little bit different. It was easier, honestly, when the kids were in school. Those days I would do the mornings with them, get them a good breakfast, get everything, get everything done. And then I would drop everybody off and drop them off a little early to school. And then I'd go straight to the hospital. I'd I'd be in the hospital all day with him, pick the kids up from school, get them dinner, get them situated, have someone come to the house. And then I'd be with Craig at night. I was always there in the evening, right up until he went to bed. It was just very important to me for his morale because there's, I mean, especially with all the medications and the drugs and the procedures and the IVs and the blood and the the stomach pains from all the from all the different things he's on, there was a lot of emotions and he is super strong, super, super strong guy. But doesn't matter how strong you are, just having someone to talk to and not even talk about all that's going on. And that's one thing that I would definitely say if you're in this these type of situations, I knew at this point. I I wasn't neglecting myself, but I knew the kids need me and Craig needs me. And this is why I always talk about getting uncomfortable and doing things on the daily that push yourself. I was really proud of how strong I was. And I didn't know how I would react in the moment of the cardiac arrest or in the days after, but I just knew I need to deal with the trauma that I saw for sure. There is some therapy coming my way, but I'm okay because I'm so glad that he's okay. And right now, I need to take care of myself. And, um, but the only way that I really try, I mean, I tried to get as much sleep as possible, but that was pretty difficult. So, no, never mind, remove that. But what I did do is make sure that I was eating right, that I was eating in a way that fueled my body and foods that made me feel good. Like I wasn't, I was keeping that as a priority because if, because if you're not fueling your body and drinking water and eating how you're used to eat and eating the way that makes your body feel good, oh, I knew I would have no chance of like staying strong through this. So I told myself at the beginning, I am prioritizing my eating. I'm making sure I prep the foods like I normally do and make sure that all happens. But besides that, I am going to, anything I need to deal with is going to happen after. And the kids are my priority and Craig is my priority. And I was just in in get it done mode. We are going to get this done. We're going to be as positive as possible while still being realistic. Um, but that's how we're going to do it. 
oh my gosh, I have so many questions to get to. So let's get through the lessons learned. Okay, let me actually take you up to speed the rest of kind of the health stuff. So Craig is in the cardiac ICU for many, many days on lots of medications. His organs start to come back. So grateful for that. Then um, we they determined that what he needs is a pacemaker and a defibrillator put in because he's at real risk of having this same cardiac arrest happen again. And if he was not in the ICU when this happened, there's not 1% chance he would survive. That's why it's the deadliest form of cardiac arrest, just because it happens so quick and it's so severe. So it's kind of like his mobile paramedic in a way. So he had a pacemaker and a defibrillator put in. Now this is the end of May. So he had it put in the last day of May, May 31st. And then he came home on June 1st, which was the best thing ever because Parker's fifth birthday was June 2nd. So he's home now and it's still an uphill battle with recovery. Like at this moment, he has a hematoma in the the area that the incision area of where they put in the pacemaker and the defibrillator. So I didn't know. It's like this box. It's about half the size of an iPhone and it sticks out like it's a big bump on the chest that you can see where this device was implanted. But listen, who cares what it looks like if it could possibly save his life? So hopefully we'll never need it. But that's the one thing that makes me feel okay. One question that people asked a lot is, are you afraid to leave him? And I'm 100%, uh, 100%, I don't know if afraid is the right word, but hesitant for him to ever be alone. At the beginning, I was completely, but I mean, when he's in the ICU, especially the the severe ICU that we were in, there was someone with him or right outside the door at all times. But even then, I just knew how quick it happened. So I do, now that he has the pacemaker and defibrillator, have that sense of like deep breath that that he has that sort of security that at least that can't happen again. Also, we know so much more from the, now that everyone's taken such a big deep dive into all of the past things. When he had his first angiogram in 2013, when he had the open heart surgery, the good news through all this is all his bypasses from the open heart surgery are all open. So lesson learned with that part of it is, you know, the more you care and ask questions, the more doctors care because so many doctors I've encountered love this stuff. That's why they do. They love helping people. And when they see that someone has a lot to live for and they see that someone has a quarterback, that I'm sitting here with my notepad and I am asking questions about, you know, about this angiogram and about this and about all the things, it makes them push and go back and find the records and, and get the answers. So I would say if you or anyone in your in your squad, in your crew, in your life that you love is going through everything, get yourself a notebook with blank pages and just start writing it down like a journal every day. I write down some days it's some days it's two sentences, some days it's two pages. And I write down every time a doc I'm we meet with a doctor, I say what this is. Okay. Um, his injection fraction is now this. It, you know, I just write down everything. Okay, the kidney is functioning at this percent. Because you think you'll remember, but I'm telling you, you don't. And I just have my book. Like I, I have my my book in front of me. And that way when an, when another doctor asks something. Um, I can refer back to what another doctor said or w- what his number was, or heart rate or whatever it is. So I would definitely say get a get a book going right away. Don't think you're going to remember it and just start writing everything down, especially if it's something that, you know, kind of happens in a crisis like this. So before I get into the questions, let me kind of get into the lessons that I've learned through this experience. First, 
your family is amazing. Like your family's like the best of the best. But the crazy thing is, is if you cultivate strong relationships and really put in the time and um, like the time and the genuine, the genuine support and love with friends, they can become like a second family. And I really realized this. I've always known how important it is to have a crew and have a squad. But when this happened, the like our close friends that really have become family to us, all the ways that they cared and they're checking in and asking questions and helping out and sending food, it's incredible. And I just realized I have friends. We have friends that have become an extension of our family. And so I think that you know, a lot of times when you're just socializing and relaxing with people and going on trips together or having experiences, it's not just, it's not just this, I don't know, it's not just this casual lounging thing. I think if you pick the right people and you are both so dedicated and genuine and they know you do anything for them and you knew they do anything for you, you can create a, a, you can create multiple other families. And that's what I've realized we've had. And that was so valuable during this process. Advocating for your own health and for the health of those you love, I've learned you have to ask questions and also lean into how you feel or how they feel. Like when Craig was telling me, like, I feel like this, I would relay that and I would be really strong with it and know that if this is happening to somebody else, know that they're probably foggy from what's going on or what's happened. So you have to take it on. You have to connect the doctors. Um and ask questions. One thing that I realized that I didn't realize before, the reason why you're getting lots of opinions and you're leaning into how you feel and you're asking lots of questions isn't because someone's not doing their best. It's not because any one of the people that took care of him weren't trying their hardest. It's because we're not their only patient. There's, we're not their only patient and I'm very aware of that. And also each doctor has their own set of experiences and they could have experienced some sort of side effect that with another patient that somehow directly could help Craig, whereas another cardiologist might not have had that same experience. So listen to your body and keep pushing for answers. That's what I've always done through all the years of all this stuff that's happened to Craig is when he tells me something, I write it down and I tell people he's not, not just as he in AFib, his heartbeat is so high, but he's having chest pain. That is not normal. That is not good. And I never let things not be a big deal. So something like that, he would be like, yeah, I have some chest pain, but you know, I've had this before. It's fine. I said, nope, chest pain is never fine. This is not good. So I would always push for answers and get more people involved if we felt like we weren't moving in the right direction. Um, also don't wait, get to doctors at the first sign of something weird. And I think that that, again, thank goodness he was in the hospital because there's like a 99.8%, um, chance of dying when you have Craig's, that's what one of the doc, one of the doctors involved with this, basically like most people who have this type of cardiac arrest don't make it because it's so sudden. So being in the ICU was just so key. So I think, um, even if you don't have a situation like Craig's, anytime you have a health situation with any of your family members, I think lean in to those small things. If they tell you something, I feel like this, I made sure everybody knows and don't wait. At the first sign of something weird, go in. What? Worst case, you waste a day, <laughs> whatever. For the, there's, you know, 
there's no bigger, there's no nothing more important in your life than your health and the health of the people that you love. Of course, going through this whole thing, I do lots of podcasts on not caring about the little things, but man, this experience really made it so clear that those things, the little things that we stress about just don't matter. And I've also realized where attention goes, energy flows. So anytime anything annoying or negative came up, I told myself, nope, we do not have the bandwidth for that. No attention goes there. Zero. And it's just amazing how powerful this is in protecting your mental headspace, which you know I'm all about protecting your mental headspace, Um, but especially in this time of crisis and to be in crisis for so long, you know, Um, and, you know, in a way now Craig's home, but we're still far from recovered. We're still at high risk of getting an infection in this area. And, you know, we're certainly, we're certainly not in the clear yet. So just realizing realizing this moment of time that you're in and not letting your attention go to anything that doesn't matter. Another thing I touched on is positing, positive thinking heals you faster. Like I mentioned, when things were going quickly, downhill very quickly, I told all his doctors, we are not telling him anything he doesn't need to know. They didn't know why his organs were failing. They didn't know why his blood pressure plummeted and his his um, oxygen plummeted. But I told him, if you, I told them, if you have bad news, you come to me outside. You do not tell him. Positive thinking heals you faster. I believe it a hundred percent. Um, if you're told you're getting worse, you believe it, and your thoughts believe it. But if you're told you're on the path for healing, you believe that. That becomes your mental plan, and it becomes your reality. Another thing I touched on, but I think it's so important, is train yourself daily to be tough. You have no idea what you're training for. I never thought I'd be in this situation, um, but I really think making putting myself in uncomfortable situations helped. I have not always been good under pressure, really have not, and I haven't always had good reactions to things. I've shared it on the podcast. But this time I was, and to be honest, I'm proud of myself. I'm proud that I didn't crumble and I was able to st- stay strong in this like heartbreaking moment, my worst fear in real life. Um I just I felt so good that I was able to get in there and help the people that were helping them and support him. But I'm telling you, that's why I love hard workouts, cold showers, um, putting myself in uncomfortable situations like, you know, agreeing to do a speech to a group of people that I've never done before, or talking about, you know, some different aspect of business that I've never spoke on before. Like just getting uncomfortable, having to having to flex those those uncomfortable muscles, I really think made me tougher. It made me tougher. So I didn't faint. I didn't crumble. I didn't break down. I didn't panic. And listen, all of those would have been acceptable emotions. I'm just saying me being able to hold strong was very valuable in this situation. And I think that training on the daily to be tough helped. You can control your thoughts. I really just had to put on my big girl pants this week and tell myself you can control your thoughts. Right now, we are not going to go there. When I would be, you know, waiting for my car at valet and I would I would just think of the weight of what we went through and picture him, you know, not making it through, I would say, no, 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 no. We are going to control our thoughts. We're not going to go there right now. There will be plenty of, of time down the line to do meditation 
and, uh, you know, probably like work through it during some massage and for therapy for sure. There will be time later. Right now, we're not going to go there because I have to remain strong. I still let myself feel the emotions, but I just didn't let myself break down because I knew I need to have a clear mind. I need to be writing my notes. I need to be connecting all the people. I need to get sleep so I'm fresh for the next day. Um, I still believe in feeling all the feelings and getting all of it out and crying it out. But I also know there's a time that it can serve you and a time when it doesn't. And when it's a time it doesn't, control your thoughts can be the most powerful thing. Last lesson learned, love your people hard. Like, you just got to love them hard. And and if it's someone else who's going through something, they have to know, like when you're there, after every procedure and every scan and every every hurdle, I just hugged and kissed Craig so hard and told him how much I loved him and how strong he was and how proud I was of him over and over. And, you know, it made me think about doing this more in real life. I never want to get so caught up in routine that I skip over, you know, kissing him when he walks through the door or hugging him. I'm telling you, the thought of losing him that I might never kiss him again was like, I'm going to kiss him every day. I'm going to kiss him until he's tired of it just because, you know, you got to love your people hard. I know I get caught up in routine and, you know, if the kids aren't listening or, you know, you got to get the meals and you got to get all the things in. And it just made me realize like I need to slow down. I need to slow it all down because there needs to be time in the day to hug each of the people, each of the people I love and and give them kisses and listen to their stories in their eyes and not say like, yeah, one second, one second, like, no, now, listen to the story now, look at the artwork now, look at the report they did now, or, you know, if it's my husband listening, watching like a ridiculous, like, you know, joke or video he has on the screen now, because like, those are the moments I really realize I need to stop being in a hurry and, and just, you know, prioritize loving my people more, even if it just means like, you know, sitting and relaxing with them and enjoying whatever it is. But I think loving your people hard on the daily and also when things go wrong is something that I really realized in a change I've already made kind of in my own life. All right, here we go. I'm going to power through all the questions because I think that in the questions really comes clarity and insight and I think can be really valuable. What did you tell the kids and how did they handle it? So I went through, I told, like I said, I told the kids a softened version and they were definitely upset and they would go through different times of it. You know, again, it's end of school year. So it was good that they were busy. One really hard thing is Presley had her first overnight, her fourth grade overnight, and Stella had her fifth grade overnight all during this time. It was good because they were away and busy with their friends, but it was sad for them to leave on a bus without, you know, without dad there, which he would normally be. It was sad for me because all of a sudden, you know, we were down two people in the house and it was just me and two kids instead of the five of us. So it made it more emotional and it was emotional for me anyways, just the girls going on their first overnight without me and with the school. But it was good because they were busy. So I just tried to really keep a pulse of their emotions and sometimes they just needed to be quiet. Um, I also just kind of made things special. So I let them pick their Postmates. Obviously, there wasn't time. I still try to keep everyone healthy-ish eating because I really feel like, you know, good food, good mood, especially when you're not sleeping as much or your immune system's down, like the healthier you can do. But I also let them order whatever they wanted to and have extra dessert and just try to, you know, when you when you need a little bit of extra comfort, those kind of foods and, you know, special treats make you feel good. 
So I did that and I just kept telling them, however you feel is okay and I just want you to express it. Sometimes they'd be quiet. Sometimes they'd have harder days. They'd cry and say they missed him. But I just made a pact to myself that we are not going to live in a house of sadness. That does not do anyone any good. So I just changed it up, brought in fun foods and fun desserts. And like I said, had, had family and friends over to do fun things and just kept them busy was key. How did you take care of the kids? So went through this pretty much, but Again, I wanted to be there for them because every time, and Craig articulated this best in the hospital, he's like, you need to go. You need to leave right now because you need to be there at carpool. Every time someone else picks them up or, you know, and in and also it's not just the act of picking them up, but it, it picked them up and hear what they have to say. And if, if the weight of the emotions were heavier on them that day, he said, every time someone picks them up, it disrupts their life a little bit more. You have to be there as much as you can. So as long as Craig wasn't having a procedure or a certain, you know, important doctor meetings weren't happening, then I would always try to do those things as much as I could. Be there, I'll pick them up, drop them off so that, um, you know, their life stayed as normal as possible. Next question, how can he prevent it from happening again? So again, since then, we've done a lot of investigating on the heart and now that he has the defibrillator pacemaker, he has a little bit of security. He has his mobile paramedic in his chest. So that's really how we can prevent the cardiac arrest from happening again. But um, over time, we'll have to see. what Does he need more procedures? Um, will his heart function really go back to where it's strong enough? Um, time will tell to see. But for in the here and now, um, if he has a cardiac arrest type situation, the devices that are implanted will re will revive him that way, um, so he'll be okay. What were the warning signs? So this is this is the most important thing. So again, I like I told you in the story, he was having AFib. His heart was racing and he was having chest pains. I believe you tell the doctors the second anything goes wrong. Or you feel, even if you're like, eh, I felt this before. Like I said, he's like, yeah, but I've had chest pains before. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Now, you know, now could be different. We we have to tell them originally. So he was having chest pains. But then right away, they knew when he was in the, the ICU, he just felt, he felt awful and also his blood pressure. So I think that would, that would be definitely what I would say in this situation is have a pulse ox, like a finger pulse ox to take the pulse and a blood pressure monitor. Because before all this happened, we his blood pressure was all over the place and his pulse was all over the place. So as far as kind of warning signs and things to look out for, if maybe someone you love has heart issues, I would definitely have those things on hand. And you know what another thing I would do, this is a huge one, is I would keep a log of their weight. I wish I would have known this because Craig was retaining water and holding so much water in his lungs that he almost, when the doctor showed me, if he laid his head back at like a 30% angle, he had gills almost. Like he had so much fluid, it was pulsing in his neck. And I was like, how did I not notice this? So if in retrospect, this is what I would have done. I would have a chart in the bathroom and every day I would write down the weight, the blood pressure and the pulse. And then, you know, do it multiple times if um, the blood pressure and the pulse, if they're feeling off. But I, if I would have done that, I would have realized, okay, he's up. I don't even know what the – because we weren't weighing him every day. He's up 10 pounds in 10 days. This is not normal. And then I could have told the doctors, hey, he's re he's retaining fluid here some somewhere because him having lungs full of fluid was a big problem in all of this. So I think if – you know, obviously be under medical care, but as far as warning signs – 
um, going forward, if if your person or you are at home, whatever your whatever you need to be monitoring, I would just have a paper. Like I I got one of those notepads that has like Monday through Friday on it, and I just wrote all the numbers every day, the weight, the blood pressure, and the pulse. And I'm still doing that now at home. So that way we're kind of monitoring it. And if anything's off, or if all of a sudden the weight goes up, or or something weird is happening, I have um, and it's on a calendar. That way it's not like written on 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 um post-its, which is how I started doing it. So if you know what to monitor, start monitoring it and write it down. Keep it in the bathroom so you don't forget. What gifts did friends give or what did they do that were the most helpful? I got this question a lot and it makes me feel so happy that so many people think, how could I support a friend in this? Um, And honestly, the people texting is, well, first of all, I mean, it's hard when you're trying to to function and do everything. But honestly, the texting support is just so nice just to be able to kind of say like, I'm so worried. This is the update. Having that like love and support. Beyond that, people sending meals was so kind and so helpful, honestly. And people offering to step in and watch the kids was the best. I had so many people offering that I would just, you know, because a lot of times I wouldn't know until the last second what the, every day was a new day. So I would just kind of text people. Most people I texted same morning, hey, anyway, you can come from this hour to this hour. Um, and that really, that really helped. I think in, in situations like this that are so extreme, there's nothing they can really give as far as gifts. I think food is always a good thing and food on the healthy side is good. So it keeps everyone feeling good and, and fueled. Um, but the, yeah, the love and the support and then watching of the kids. Um, I think, I think offering and also offering, um, if someone's in the hospital, I would text. I now, after being on the other side with it, I would text a friend every morning. How can I help you today? What can I pick up is there? And then once people get home, like I'm home with Craig now, thank goodness that I have, um, some kind of assistance with work that they can go and pick up a prescription. Cause I, on certain times I cannot leave him and I have the kids at home too. So just having friends that are willing to do things. So if you have someone in this situation, whether in the hospital or at home, I would just text them every morning. How can I be the here for you today? And a lot of times they'll say nothing, but just having that support, or maybe they'll have you pick up a prescription, which is just like life-saving, life-saving for me to try to load up kids because I couldn't leave them home with Craig. If something were to happen, you know, for a big period of time when he first got home, I was pulling him out of bed. Like he couldn't push himself out of bed after having the pacemaker put in. So he would wake me up through the night, wake me up and say, hey, I have to go to the restroom because he's on all these all these things. I have to pee constantly, all the medications. So just having friends step in in that way was huge. Next, how did you keep the emotional exhaustion from wiping you? I would be curled up in bed. Oh, girl, listen, I wanted to be curled up in bed, but I just told myself I am the quarterback here. I have to be strong. It's game day. There's plenty of time for sleep and relaxation and rest and massages later. Right now, it's game time. He needs me. The kids need me. In a way, I I made it like it fueled me. Like, you know, they need me and I'm going to be there for them. And it felt empowering. And I just, again, controlled my emotions. I I was running, I was running on energy, running on adrenaline, and I just didn't let my mind go there. Like if I would, if I would say I'm so tired, I would literally tell myself, you're not tired. You got this. You're, you can do it. You can actually do it. Next one. As an ICU nurse, I'd love to hear what you found helpful and not so helpful with the nurses. The nurses at Hogue 
were all so incredible. The way they are so patient and so kind and like so slow moving for people recovering is amazing. It's hard for me to do things slow. Like the way they would, you know, put on his socks so slow. I was like, oh my gosh, these people are saints. And, you know, they're so cool with everything. You got to deal with bowel movements. And thank goodness with Craig, there was no issues. He was very worried about having to go in a bedpan. Thank goodness his body was kind of stopped for a couple of days after the procedure. I'm sure too much information. But my point is these nurses see and deal with everything. And honestly, I, I don't have one single thing that I could say could have gone differently. Our nurses were incredible. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know the picture that I shared because I really didn't take any pictures in the hospital. I just thought, you know, this is one of the worst times of his life. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want pictures, and I don't need to remember this. I remember it plenty. I kind of wish I had one picture of me, like I would just kiss his cheek so much. I kind of wish I had a picture of that. But really, listen, I'd rather have pictures when he's well and happy and out of the hospital because it was such a sad time. Also. He had a room with a small window, and so it's in Newport Beach overlooking the water, which was gorgeous. He was there on Memorial Day overlooking Nobu, his favorite restaurant of all time, and people are on boats and jumping off of boats and having slides. He's like, all I can see is people cheersing and people high-fiving and people going to Nobu and on boats. It was like a beautiful Memorial Day. He's like, I feel like I'm in prison. I am in prison up here because he just he was there for so many days and the days seem so long when you're uncomfortable and pain and they would come in and, and do tests because he was in ICU and, and you know unstable. So they're waking you up every couple hours. It's hard. Um, but the nurses were incredible. They couldn't have been any better. And I have just such a new oh, what I was gonna say, I have a new respect for for nurses, which I've always found respect, but just a whole nother level. I made these baskets and also it made me feel so good. One of the days I picked up the kids. We went to Costco. We loaded up on snacks, healthy snacks, Oreos, apple chips, all sorts of them. Um, I did an Instacart order and just got some big tubs from Michael's. I put crinkle in the bottom and I put a ton of snacks. And I knew the kids couldn't visit Craig, but they wanted to do something. So one afternoon after school, I picked them up from school. We did all this. We put the baskets together and we delivered them to the hospital. Now we couldn't go to every area but they would send out a representative. So they sent out someone from ICU to come pick up this huge basket of snacks. And the kids took turns saying, thank you for helping my daddy. And they wrote a card on the outside and signed their names. And then I actually put a picture of the five of us, which at first felt weird. And I was going to take them off. But then I was like, no, I want them to see they changed a life. Like especially those ICU people that, that, you know, the lady with the feet off the floor doing the, doing the, um, the CPR on him, like you saved a life. This is the man you brought back to his family. Like the power of it is so incredible. So I was like, I don't care if it looks cheesy because it did. But I was like, I want them to see that this, you know, person that you see who looks, you know, so weak and out of it is like, you know, a dad full of energy and life and has so much life to live. And it was great. Like the feedback from them, they were like, this is amazing. We work such long hours. We're going to like d- dive into this. And it just made me feel so good. And I put, I, we gave one, I knew I was going to, I made, oh, I don't know, six or we made the kids and I made six or seven out of the gate. And at that point he had been in four places in the hospital. So we delivered them to all four. And then later when he would get transferred to a new unit, I'd bring a new one up and just say, we are so grateful for you guys. And I just felt like it just made them feel good because they're just working so hard. And again, they see everything including the including the ugly. And so that made us feel really good. And it, even though the 
the kids couldn't see Craig at the hospital. I think that it made it not so scary that they went in and went to the lobby and were able to, you know, smile and thank um, some of the people that helped Craig was as valuable for the kids as, as, you know, as the nurses were grateful to receive it. How are you holding up? (laughs) That's a very nice question. You know what? Honestly, the fact that he's here and I'm just so, so grateful. Like me picturing my life without him, I'm one of those rare people that I am so obsessed with the person. I'm so, uh, I just love Craig so much. I'm so grateful for how hard he works and all that he does for um, our family and the love and support. I just, I love him on, uh, I just, I have undying love for him. And I'm, yeah, we still have so much fun and, and all that stuff. He is my person. So for those couple minutes and seeing in their eyes, thinking that he would be gone, Man, all things considered, I'm holding up great. Like I said, I know I will need therapy. And honestly, if anyone has if anyone knows what I need as far as therapy or trauma, I'd like to go to someone who's specific in this because like I said, really the biggest problem I have is replaying of that video, the video of those, you know, my greatest fear realized. I just need to stop that video from playing. But overall, um, I'm good. I'm so good. I'm I'm so grateful to have him home, even though I know it's a long road to recovery. Um, next question is what's Cro- Craig's long-term prognosis? That is to be determined. Hopefully, if it were up to me, it's to mellow out for a bit, to try to, I really believe, believe food is thy medicine um, to get him. He's already, he was already on a path of losing weight before this, just because he had a little extra weight in his tummy. Um, he was weighing about 180 and he weighs 164 now, not all during the surgery time, but over the last few months. Um, so I'm so happy that's going in the right direction just cause I know less weight on his body is less pressure on the heart. Um, and I'd like to get, I'd like to get him, you know, once he's able to exercising and really eating healthier, um, and really trying to do the lifestyle stuff. I would prefer less medicine, less procedures, and really try to let his body heal and recover. But we'll see. And that's why we have a whole team. Some people are more uh, aggressive with the procedure plan and and the medications, and others are more conservative. So that's kind of why we have a balance of different opinions. Um, but I think that he's had a lot of procedures. He has a lot of scar tissue. We know that the uh, bypasses are open, so that's a good thing. Um, so... His long-term prognosis, um, I'm hopeful. I'm always hopeful, but it's definitely an uphill. It's definitely an uphill battle. I mean, he is 50 years old and, you know, has the heart of at least a 70-year-old, if not older. So, um, but yeah, to be continued and I'll definitely, um, I'll definitely keep updated on it, but we're optimistic and, and, you know, grateful. And I think that now we have so much more attention and we know so much more uh, very unfortunate that we had to find out this way, uh, but I'm just so grateful that he was in ICU when the cardiac arrest happened. How did you keep from falling apart when he was in the hospital? I knew it wasn't an option. Me falling apart, I was, to him, he needed me, um, and the kids needed me. It just, I physically told myself, it's not an option right now. Did you feel comfortable leaving him alone in the hospital? No, especially after I knew that I made that mistake leaving for open house. I knew it. I I just I had a bad feeling and I was like, all right, all right, all right. It's one hour. 
Um, but so yes, after that, I was absolutely afraid of leaving him. Um, but I just left for as few hours as possible. Honestly, they were so sweet. Like clo- the, the hours would end at 1030 visiting hours, but they usually let me stay till midnight because I just stayed in the corner of his room and then, you know, left with a mask on. Um, so at the beginning, yes, I was. And so I would just stay as long as possible. I'd stay till midnight and be back at six because I was afraid. And he knew that uh, his organs were still failing and I wanted to be there. Um, Have some wisdom for food in a crisis. I feel like you weren't, I feel like you weren't eating McDonald's. You are exactly right. I was not eating McDonald's. Like I mentioned, that's the only thing I prioritized for myself. I told myself I'm going to prep the food and I'm going to make sure I'm eating enough and I'm eating foods that fuel my body. I didn't skip. Even if I was dying to get to the hospital, I would make like just make up some, you know, protein and vegetables and fruit. And um, I love the clean peanut butter protein bars. I think that's a brand of it. I would just, so I would pack a whole little like, you know, like a small cooler and I would just bring it with me because I didn't know when I was going to the hospital, sometimes I was there for two hours, sometimes I was there for six. So I would just pack all my food with me or I'd usually, because it's kind of hard and, and yucky to eat in the hospital, I'd usually like make a, make something and eat a big meal on my way to the hospital. I always made sure that I was prioritizing my own nutrition because I know if that's not good, then for me, nothing, nothing's good. How much did you tell each of your kids and how did you keep your composure? Uh, again, I told the big kids separately, then Parker. And every day I would give them little updates. I would give them updates. I would show them video. I really think if you're ever in a situation like this, and I hope you're not, I think honesty is the best with kids. They thrive on they thrive on being told the truth in a kid ver- in a conversion. And I think it makes it less scary when they know you're not hiding anything. Um, how did you advocate for him without seeming rude or overreactive? This is a great question because you are bugging people, you know, they didn't act like that. But when I'm going through and, and, you know, when I would get in there and ask a nurse, okay, can you tell me what medication he's on and what, uh, how many milligrams, when was the last time has he had a stomach medication to offset all the, all the drugs that he's on? You know, that's extra work for them. And they know, like, listen, they're like, listen, this is what we do. This is our job. We have it handled. But because he had gone from so many different departments, I needed to kind of keep a pulse on it. So I was always kind of the same. My straight strategy that I always take on, I was just as polite as possible. And I was like, listen, I'm so sorry. Craig's just been through so much. And honestly, everyone understood. Um, they knew the code blue in the hospital. They knew what they had what he had been through. So everyone was super willing to share with me everything that I wanted to know. And again, I put everything in the notebook every day. Whenever you're just sitting or or sitting, like maybe even someone's not in the hospital, but someone you love, you're taking them to doctor's appointments, get a book. And when you're sitting in the waiting room, don't scroll Instagram, write your notes, just like a journal. I would just brain dump anything I'm thinking about, anything that someone told me lately and just keep a log. I just wrote the date and then I just wrote everything below it like a journal. And that helped so much. And that made me feel more comfortable. And then I knew that, you know, I knew that I was doing the best thing. So I think in, you know, when you're advocating for your person, just be overly kind and explain like, I just love them so much. I'm sorry to overly ask you questions. I know you're busy and I know you have this covered. I was just wondering if you can kind of help me fill in a couple missing pieces here and they'll always do it. Um, How to navigate checkups and hereditary stuff. So I think... Um, leaning into how you feel 
um, going in and telling people at the first sign of anything going weird. And I think calendar it. So if you know you have something hereditary, I would calendar it. So if it's once a year, if it's every six, if it's every three months or six months to get checked, because we know the days go by fast. Routine happens. You get caught up. I now calendar. That's my biggest tip. If you know you have something hereditary, you get it on your calendar and you get, you know, you get your paper calendar. For me, that's how it works. And I write down, this is the month to have this done. This is the month to have this checked. And Craig will be like, I'm too busy. I don't need an EKG. Don't care. Yes, you do. This is not just your decision. It affects the whole family. You're going. So that's what I would say. Managing the health checkups, calendar it. Ask ask your people, how often should I have you know, my daughter's eyes checked because my, my daughter has a, a freckle in her eye, Presley, and it's benign, but there's sometimes it becomes not benign and it causes um, some rare disease. I can't even remember the name of it, but anyways, it's just this freckle. And right now it's fine. But we have to check it every year because if it does turn, it turns quickly. So I just have it on my book. Every, every February, we go in for the eye check. So that way I'm not relying on them doing it or me or forgetting. So that's what I would say. Calendar it on a paper calendar so you make sure that it happens. How do you not live in fear after? I totally live in fear, but not in the way that it paralyzes me. I find power in knowledge and by really how I don't live in, actually live in fear is by being overly attentive to all of his symptoms, medications, I do his medications. I dose them out for him because I know, again, he's tired. He could kind of have loopy days still. Um, so I just make sure all that's all that's pinned up and I'm constantly communicating with doctors. Even if you don't have a concierge doctor, if you don't you know, need that or have that level of care, you can still with now, there's incredible um, ways that you can email in and they might charge you a $30 copay or kind of whatever your copay is, but you can email into your doctors through your app. We use MyChart. Um, it's incredible. So um, I just think, ask the questions. Ask, how can I have access to you without having to come in? How can I keep you updated? It's incredible if you just ask how you can have so much access to your doctors. And I'm telling you, most doctors that we've encountered love what they do and they want to help, but they do have a lot of patients. You're not the only one. So by asking those questions and asking, how can I get to you? How can I update you? How can I ask you the questions? They'll usually tell you, here's the backdoor answer. You message me on the app. And a lot of times there is no copay. You can kind of just, you know, send things back and forth. It's quick for them and they don't mind. So for me, that's how I don't have, live in fear. Even though, I mean, I, it's still so recent. It's still, you know, like Craig was falling asleep and then started breathing weird. And I ran in from the bathroom like, wow, why'd you stop? You know, like I still have those kind of moments. Um, but really like knowledge for me um, and being on top of it is is what makes me what makes me feel good. Okay, couple last questions. Oh my gosh, this is such a long podcast. Thanks for hanging on. But I'm telling you, I think sharing these stories is how we learn and and how, you know, I really hope that this episode maybe, maybe sparks something in you. Maybe makes you go follow up on something. Maybe you have a dark mole that you're like, yeah, it's probably fine, but I should have done it two years ago. Go, call tomorrow, call today. That's the biggest lesson is, your, there's nothing more important than your health. And I know so many people who have had a warning sign and not leaned into it and not gotten the right attention and, and it's gotten worse or or it it compounded into something else. So thanks for hanging on. I, I think that there's just so much, there's so much value in um, 
advocating for our health and charting it and writing it down and having your health book. And when I have this health book, if there's blood work, I just tape it in here. It's like a scrapbook. I mean, but it is organized just in the way that like, it's just a journal. And when blood work comes in, I tape it, uh, print it out. You know, sometimes I have to cut it a little smaller and I tape it in here because, you know, sometimes I'll be meeting with a doctor and they're like, hey, do you know this? Rather than having to try to pull it up on my phone, I don't have time for that. Yep, here it is. It's taped right in my book. This is what its cholesterol was last month. If you have something this serious, this is the level you need to do it at, I think. Get, get all the things and just be organized every day when something comes through, tape it in your book because that way you have all the information. These doctors are amazing, but they have lots of patients. Make it easy for them. Help them. Give them the answers. Have the answer ready when they ask. Someone says the initial stage when you aren't sure what's happening, how do you have trust in the doctors? Oh, you just have to. You have to trust the doctors and I think that you have to connect other doctors. Like I wasn't, I was trusting the doctors, but I was also being proactive. Like if you're in a situation that you know is really bad, don't just sit there. Think about who else can help. Maybe even it's friends. Maybe friends have, you know, I've had that happen where my friend's brother-in-law was a cardiologist that could, that Cedars, that could really help me. You know, think of the ways that you can connect other people. So you're not just trusting. Yes, I trusted them completely, but I was also connecting other people involved. So I knew I had backup. I wasn't just sitting in the chair. I was I was trying to get backup support the whole time. How do you radiate down to earth positivity always, but handle life when it gets so scary? Well, first, thank you, because that's that's really the goal is to try to be optimistic. I'm telling you, if you if you think you're dying, that's how you that's how you proceed. If you think you're getting well and on the road to recovery, that's your mindset. I just think there's so much power in the thoughts we think and the words that we say. And I believe it so much. And honestly, I've worked so much on myself. I've worked through my issues. I don't have FOMO. I don't have jealousy. I, you know, listen, nobody's perfect. Um, I certainly make mistakes, but I've worked so many years and reading books and listening things and and trying to be the best version of myself. And I'm I'm honestly am proud that in this time of crisis it came through that I was able to radiate positivity and show our gratitude to the hospital staff and sort of remain calm. And honestly, the way that I was able to do that is years and years of work, recognizing, being honest with myself at my weaknesses and my struggles. And working to fix it, maybe fix it's not the right word, but to to be my best version of myself, you know, to not worry about the things that don't matter and um, really be aware of your thoughts and your words and the power of them. Last couple, how do you keep all the info organized in a book? I've gone through this book, uh, but I'm telling you, you need a book. So I now have just like a book like this for everyone in the family. So if I take um, anyone, I have for the kids, I have like actual kind of books on Amazon, but now I might just move over to like just, it's just literally like a spiral thin notebook that I write this in. And I'm obsessed with it because it's just down and dirty. It's straightforward. I have everything and every doctor visit I do it. I think I might switch to this for the kids too. I have like an Amazon book that I've posted before, which is good. Um, but for me, I like this because it's a full size, like eight and a half by 11 book. So you can tape in reports and stuff like that. Those other books are like bound smaller books that are made, you know, kind of like small journaling, which is good. But like for me, if something's too fussy, I just, I forget it at home or I don't really use it. If it has like specific questions you have to fill in, I just like a blank notebook. So 
I'm going to start after this, just have a notebook for each person because everyone, everyone has something. And, um, you know, everyone in our family has, you know, little concerns about different things. So I'd like to be better at tracking it and how cool for kids to, to, you know, have all your history in one. So that's what I'm going to do. This book that I started when, um, when Craig got sick this time has worked so well for me. And again, being this size that where you can just tape anything in the pages has been so valuable. My girl Presley is getting migraines, like the worst migraine. She's throwing up. It lasts for 12 hours. It's awful. And so I've, I've started um, a book like that for her so I can monitor, you know, this day she had it so I can monitor how far apart they're happening. I ask her questions so we can try to figure out if anything is triggering the headaches, you know, and I just say this example just to kind of get you thinking. This doesn't have to be if someone in your life has heart disease, but it could just be anything like migraines. Get a book and chart it. Write down like a journal and keep it accessible. Do not. This is not something that you stuff under your bed or in the ottoman. Like I keep them on my nightstand and I grab them. If I'm taking a kid to a doctor, I grab it and I just take notes as the doctor is speaking. It's all there. I think that having health books that you work on are great. Because there's so many things that you think that you're going to remember that you will forget and it's important. And you never know later on what's going to be important. And when a doctor prescribes something, I'll write down what they prescribe. Because sometimes we'll have creams or, or medicines like, you know, backed up and I don't even remember what it's for. Like, you know, if Craig gets, uh, Parker gets these little bumps, I don't even know which cream anymore it is to use, but now I'll have it in my book. Um, how to balance internet research of it. This is a great question because I think going down rabbit holes on Google can be really bad. When I was, when different things were happening, he was put on different medications or they would tell me some, some new sad, you know, prognosis or update. I would Google it, but just the facts, just so I knew what it meant. Okay. Blood was clotting weird or whatever it is. I did not let myself go down the rabbit hole of side effects and because I'd rather just listen to the doctors and not freak myself out. And I know, you know, information on the internet can be difficult to know, you know, what, what's what. And um, I just didn't want to freak myself out. And honestly, I didn't have time for any more than that. So I say do internet research, but just the basics when you're learning what different things are. How can you have a plan in place for emergencies like this? I think flexing your toughness muscle on the regular is key. I think having these medical books ready. Um, and I think honestly having having time by yourself to to be strong. And for me, it's that mental toughness. And like I said, working to be awesome every day, right? Working on your mind, working on your body, working on connections with friends, I didn't realize that those things that you do that you just, yeah, which is meeting friends for lunch, but like it's that those deep relationships that I needed that were everything when I was going home and sleeping in the bed. Well, I wasn't sleeping alone because I always had Parker in the bed and if not another kid, because there was no way I was going to say no if they were sad and lonely and wanted to sleep with me. But you know what I mean? Like leaving Craig in the hospital every night when I didn't want to leave him, it sucks being in the hospital. Like that was heart wrenching. And to be going home alone was just so sad and being so unsure about what was going to happen or when he was going to leave the hospital was awful. So plan in place for emergencies is, is spend time with the people that you want to be spending time with. Strengthen your crew, your family, your friends. So, you know, if you, you know, hopefully you'll never need it. But if you need that support, it's everything to have a good support system. Those unconditional people who are like, I am here for you morning, noon, or night. What do you need? If you need to call, if you need to talk, if you need food, if you need the kids taken care of, like I'm here. Um, I think that it's all that stuff. It's the long term. It's all the little things. 
um, to prepare your mind so that you could be okay in an emergency. And I think also having like metal, like having your, your binders, having your little, your not like a three ring binder, just like, you know, with a spiral little binder with, with lined paper. I'm telling you, I'm obsessed with it because it just makes you journal it and it makes you keep track of things. Um, for me in an emergency that felt empowering because I didn't feel helpless. I felt proactive because I was constantly getting more information, writing it down, keeping it organized, sharing it with the other doctors. Again, he's not the only patient. The kidney doctor would come in and say, hey, what did the cardiologist say about this medication? And I knew because I just wrote it down. Um, so for me, it's um, you know being mentally strong, having your crew, having a medical book, controlling your thoughts. Last question, what is his health plan moving forward? So we're going to do a healthier lifestyle. We're going to go on nighttime walks after dinner. Um, once he's able to, he's going to do some do some weights to get some muscle back. Um, overall healthy. Lots of plants, eating plants and lean proteins, and just really less stress, less time spent at work, focusing on health. Health is the priority, which I think we should all always do, Right. Make time for self-care. Make time, downtime to do nothing. Make time to be with people we love. Um, Craig has a busy, busy job, a busy work job. He, he um, has a marketing company. He owns a marketing company. It's his main job, but then he's a partner in several other companies. So he's pulled in different directions, different counties for meetings. And I think that sometimes he didn't realize how much that was on, on taxing on his already tired body um, and dinners and different things. So I think just prioritizing the health going forward is key. And for all of us, um, really enjoying the time together, even if it's not ideal. Like right now, we're all just staying home. I'm afraid of Craig has a little sore throat right now. I'm afraid of him getting sick. The COVID cases are on the rise and um, lots of kids at school have COVID. So, you know, I'm, we're just like, you know, the kids are still going to school for the last couple of days, but just staying home being home so I can be with Craig. The kids can play games. They can watch more device. They can watch more TV than they normally would. We're cooking at home and being at home and just spending time being mellow. No stress, like less moving around for him, not getting in and out of the cars only for doctor's appointments. Um, and being positive and laughing and doing all the normal things, not operating like he's sick and bandaged and bleeding, which he is, but making fun of each other and just making the best of it. And I'm telling you, one, I'm going to end it with this. One of the best things that helped us through this, Craig and I, is one of the things that I've adopted lately, and I just did a podcast on it. It's called This Is Just a Moment. And I did a podcast on this. You have to go back and listen to it. But when Craig and I had our lowest moments together in the hospital, I would hold his hands and look into his eyes. And I said, Craig, this feels like we will never get out of this. We... It feels, you know, when we were, when when he was so sick and um, we just kept getting bad news, bad news after bad news. I mean, a little bit of positive news, but I mean, he just felt so knocked down. I was like, this is just a moment. It feels like you're never getting out of here, but you are. You're going to be home before you know it. This is just a moment. And I feel like that helped us because when you when you like open up your mind to think beyond it, it makes it so much more digestible. Like, yes, I can get through today. Like this is not forever because, you know, for a while there, it looked like, gosh, when are we even getting out of the hospital? Is it months? And I just told him, this is just a moment. It feels like we're stuck, but we're not. Every day we're making progress. You're healing. You're getting stronger. You're recovering. 
this is just a moment. So if you didn't listen to that podcast, I would go back and listen to that one because I'm telling you that helped us so much in just like taking a deep breath and realizing um, that this is just a moment. It will get better. And um, just the power of positive thinking. And I'm telling you, if you think you're getting better, it really helps you get better. I just think you can think yourself sick or you can think yourself well. Thoughts are so powerful and our words are so powerful. So just being mindful of that and mindful of where your attention goes and where your attention goes, energy flows. I just think it's everything. I hope you learned so much in this podcast. I cannot believe it is almost two hours long. This might be our longest podcast together to date, Um, but I'm so grateful for this platform. Um, I think that social media can be so cool and this podcast platform, just the way that I've been able to connect and have conversations with people in other states and other countries that I would never meet otherwise. I'm so grateful for it. And I hope that you got lots of value out of this podcast and you take something away from it. Um, and it adds value in your own life, whether it's on the daily or if a crisis happens that you'll be able to show up in the way that you want to. Cheers to happiness and good health. Thank you again for all the love and all the support that you've shown me and Craig and our family. Um, I'll be sure to send keep little updates going um, because I'm just so grateful that so many people ask and so many people care. Thank you for listening. Ping me at Lindsay's Cloud on Instagram. Let me know what you thought about this episode. And again, thank you for being here. And gosh, how great. I'm just so great the w- grateful the way this turned out and that I'm talking to you about it in the way that I am. Even though we have an uphill battle ahead, it is so much better than the alternative. And I will forever be grateful for the way that day turned out. Thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the How to Be Awesome at Everything podcast. For more info about today's episode and all past episodes, head over to howtobeawesomeateverything.com where we break it all down. Tell us what you thought of today's topic on Lindsay's Instagram at Lindsay's Cloud. Until next time, go out and be awesome because that's exactly what you are.